Hey everybody, this is Derek. This is Mark. What's up? A little late on the hitting of the record button. I think um, problem started sweet. when I had to move my mouse cursor to a specific location on my screen. Uh, yes. It really messes me up when I need to do stuff like that. Yeah, that's um. They give you that test after you have a stroke. Uh, they like make you like touch a touch screen. It's kind of it's kind of a uh, uh, morbid. Maybe I shouldn't like say this in uh, in 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 jest. But there's this guy we watch on YouTube who like he's. <laughs> It's it's not me. It's, it's, we did not invent like tormenting this guy. He's a guy who like is famous for being like a complete failure online. Uh, his name is uh, Jack Scalfani, cooking with Jack. Uh, if, uh, some people might have heard of him before because he's well, kind of famous. If he's famous for that, then he's not a failure, correct? Yeah. Well, exactly. His life is a failure, but he's he's renowned on YouTube. Um, he has a bunch of viewers, but nobody likes him. Like everyone's, you know, watching him to laugh at how bad he is at everything. And okay, um, wait, what? What's his name? I'm sorry. His name is Jack Scalfani, but the show is called Cooking with Jack or the Cooking with Jack Show. And he's been on YouTube for like literally like 15 years, like since the very beginning. So he got like accidentally famous at the beginning because he would do like the very first version of like here's how you cut a pineapple, like YouTube video, you know? So a lot of people found him that way, like in the old, old days when there wasn't a lot on YouTube. But he like tried to do a cooking show. He appeared uh, one time on the reality show, um, Texas Investors Club, which Matthew McConaughey's brother was a host of. Did you ever see that show? No. It was like a low rent shark tank where Wait, like was, people would is, try to- Was it his brother, Rooster? Rooster, yeah, who's very funny, yeah. Um, so like, yeah, people would like bring them ideas for business investments like Shark Tank. And this guy, Jack Scalfani, tried to go on and sell like a barbecue sauce. But these guys are all in Texas, you know, and they're like making fun of him for thinking that he knows anything about barbecue. And uh, yeah, they're just like tormenting him because they try to like make him do like a cook off and he fails at it. They wind up making him cry, which is a great moment. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, it's like that movie, Windy City Heat. Right. Oh, just it's, tormenting it's that of, guy. What's yeah, his name? Right. I can't remember the guy's name. I've actually never seen that movie, but I heard Corolla talk about it a lot. Yeah. I mean, I've seen clips of it and, and, and recent clips. Like, like people are still bothering him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just takes it seriously. Like, I think there must be something wrong with him, though. Something doesn't yeah. seem right. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's like, that's, and that's a whole phenomenon, right? The d- d- lol like, cow like Some people phenomenon. are just really dumb. Mm-hmm. Like, dude, you will not be able to communicate well with a guy who has an 80 IQ. Mm-hmm. Like you don't know they exist because you I, you like don't even see them intellectually, right? I mean, you're friends with me. I appreciate that, but most of the time, <laughs> right. most I, of the time, I make you it work. <laughs> my, my mom's still paying you to hang out with me, right? Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah, I'll, I'll invoice you later. <laughs> okay, cool. No, um, but you, so th- that, that might thing, be part of it. Yeah, so. and that that thing of like just kind of gawking at sort of failures, but in a way that in its own way does kind of turn them into celebrities that's like a that's like a tried and true thing you know that's like it's it's yeah. happened throughout the years and i think it's kind of like caught on in certain ways like you know the room you know tommy wiseau that's kind of something that's somewhat in the same realm he's weird he's not low iq maybe i, I don't know he's just weird in a different way and you know a lot of mst riff tracks culture is kind of around this same sort of thing like when we laugh at the Birdemic guy, you know, part of the reason Dude, why. What about is because, Quasimodo and the Festival of Fools? There you go. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and so 
people, you know, longtime listeners of the Brazen Heads will know that I have a, you know, retinue of YouTube freaks who we enjoy watching in my household. And a lot of that comes from the Chapo FYM Twitch streams and all that stuff. I've talked about Steve before, for example, Steve, the autistic kid in Chicago. But the thing is, like, there's like the good freaks and then there's the bad freaks. Like Steve is good. He, he's a great kid. Uh, and it's just funny to hear this autistic kid's vlogs on YouTube just because of the specific way he talks and his takes that he has. Like it's, he has a beautiful mind. It really jives with Derek for some reason. Yeah, for some reason. I really see eye to eye with this kid. <laughs> but, but Jack Scalfani is the evil side of the spectrum where it's like, yeah, people watch him on YouTube. Uh, he is popular on YouTube, but it's all this lol cow thing. That's what it's called, lol cow. That's like an internet, you know, phenomenon, urban dictionary type thing for this kind of person who's famous for being an yeah. idiot on the internet. I, I'm writing all this down. Please talk slowly for me. Yeah. Well, anyway, long story short, Jack Scalfani, this Cooking with Jack guy, one of the things that he was notorious for in his early failed attempts at cooking videos is that he would always just wind up, well, not always, but there were many notable instances where he would wind up making raw food. Like he would do this whole elaborate recipe. He has this whole thing where he thinks it's fake if you've pr tried the recipe before. You have to just film yourself doing the recipe for the very first time and whatever happens, happens. So there would be times where I he like would just that like try. Idea. Yeah, it seems like a good idea, except for that he's arrogant and thinks he knows everything and he's bad at everything. Like the execution always fails uh, and, and he's a jackass about it. So he would like make raw chicken, but then he would have to kind of like eat it and say that it's good because he would never like cop to a mistake or whatever. So he wouldn't cook uh, it correctly. It's not like he was trying to make raw chicken. Exactly. Because I've tried to up. make raw chicken before. That's actually very easy. Right. It has zero steps, actually, <laughs> if you want. That's what you're going for. Yeah. yeah. You just take it but, out of the wrapping and take a huge chunk out of it. Right. Um, so, yeah, anyway, um, he wound up, like, eating raw food several times. There was this one notorious one where he had some guy on who, like, th this other guy was trying to be, like, a cooking guy, too. So he was, like, a guest on the show. And his whole thing was doing uh, jarred shelf-stable room-temperature soups. So they would, like, make all these, like, soups and then just put them into jars like warm and just hand seal them and then just like put them up on a shelf. And like, it turns out that like they like, you know, that's like winds up being like the number one way that people get botulism. Like it's like a super dangerous thing to do. Like if you ever try to jar something, you're supposed to do it like very carefully and they just like ignored all of that stuff. There's lots of different ins and outs with this thing. The other thing about this guy, Jack is that he's a very like hateful Christian conservative guy, uh, like super just like, yeah, just hateful, like just has a lot of bad takes about everything. Uh, and at one point he was being interviewed on some sort of like Christian family, like radio show. And he admitted to choking one of his sons, <laughs> like like that he was like, got frustrated with his son and choked him like literally Homer Simpson shit, but like not, <laughs> not in a funny way, like bad. Um, and so it turns out that like one of his sons like disowned him, doesn't talk to him anymore. He's just like a real a-hole all around and he just gives off a-hole vibes. That's usually a bad sign. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, karma's a bitch because over the years, Jack has had uh, three different strokes now. Uh, and yeah, he like lost the use of one arm. He had another stroke recently, like earlier this year, that was really bad. Like he can barely make videos anymore, but he still insists on doing it. So he makes his wife do everything. Uh, so like he'll still turn on the camera and still pretend he's doing like a cooking show, but he can't even like mix a mixing bowl. Cause he, he can't, he doesn't have the motor skills anymore. It's, it's 
it's bad. All he needs to do is like sign off and spend time with his family and stop obsessing on trying to be internet famous, but he won't, he can't. It's just not in his personality. It's that windy city heat thing. He thinks he's an internet celeb. Um, so I, I don't know, dude, I mean, he has 522,000 subs. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think he's a loser, I have news for you. I just passed 3,000 <laughs> subs. It was like the greatest day of my life. So Yeah, but read his comments, though. If you if you read his comments, well, actually, it, it, it wouldn't even make sense. If you read his comments, you'll see a lot of people being nice to him. But what that is is people pretending to be nice to him to just try to like lead him along more and more. Again, going back to the Windy City Heat thing. You're right. That is a good model for this whole thing. Anyway, I just recall that after Jack's last stroke, one of the things they made him do, and of course he filmed all of this and posted it because it all has to go online, is they have this terrible footage of him standing in front of like a full-size, like human-sized touchscreen, like one foot away from it, like his face like crammed up against the screen. And it shows these like dots on the screen and you have to like touch each dot in succession as it pops up on the screen as a way of like practicing and re, you know, honing your motor skills uh, after a stroke. And so there's just like a terrible clip of him trying and failing to do that after a stroke. Uh, and like, you know, you can compare that, like run it side by side with like chimps, you know, who do that same thing. And <laughs> like chimps can like successfully play video games, you know, for food pellets and stuff. Um, anyway, the, the idea of you having to move your mouse mouse cursor and click on the record button accurately is what reminded Dude, after me of nine minutes of, of reference <laughs> yeah. background for that reference we yeah. finally got around to it i guess i could have just or so well hey welcome to podcast world where that's what we do that's right yeah we're filling this time somehow <laughs> oh did you want to be entertained bl- by a podcast no that's not what goes on here no the point is to you get want your... a television show yeah that's there's like writers and thought that goes into that that's right that's right yeah, I could have just referenced the uh, Fry missing the button in Futurama. I guess that would be the way easier reference, but whatever. One of yeah, the funniest the just little get. moments ever. Well, I will watch this guy's channel. Like, you know, I, I'm, I I just find YouTube fascinating. It's obviously the coolest thing on the internet. I mean, what's cooler than YouTube or, or you know, sites like that? Mm-hmm. Rumble, BitChute, obviously. That's where I watch all my documentaries. Yeah, there's a... There's an endless amount of stuff to find. I mean, like I said, I wind up watching all this stuff usually kind of in like a one step removed, you know, MST sort of context where you're sort of like riffing on it. But like I know that the the guys whose streams we watch who find a lot of these, you know, YouTube lol cows, one of the things that they'll do is just try to like search a random term to just see like what funny like zero view video comes up. You know, so you pick something like uh like a Joe Biden parody song or something, but then you sort it by views and just see like, okay, who has the zero view version of a Joe Biden parody song? And it's a pretty reliable way of, of finding freaks. The other thing, which I think is a brilliant idea. Is this your way of, of telling me I'm a low cow? Cause that sounds no. like, Oh my God. No. Cause that's, that sounds like, <laughs> Oh no, dude, the, the bar, views. you, you would not believe how low this bar goes. No, the, the people, I mean, you got to see some of these people. It's, it's a completely different world of unawareness. Um, even, even compared to our low listener count podcast, <laughs> it's like, right. Just like that. Right. It's not like I'm one to talk. Yeah. It, it's just, it's yeah, just complete. So yeah, why do you yeah. watch it? I, I mean, I imagine like with honey boo boo, my theory with that is people would always watch it to feel better about themselves. Like I may be fat and white trash, but I'm not as white trashy and as fatty as this person over here. Right. Right. 
Yeah, so I think is that part of this? There is a good answer to this question. I mean, I think it's 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 a good question. One of them, I do get the one, room. One answer is that there's a social aspect to it. It would not be as fun to do this if there were not a community of like-minded people who we know, who we're joking around with and chatting with, who are watching it together. Um, that's a. And then I also think that B, it does come from this, again, like MST sort of like mindset. Like I've just always thought that that was like the funniest form of com uh, comedy or that like what hit me the most was like reacting to other stuff rather than like the, you know, original, uh, you know, scripted comedy content of like, a, you know, of like The Simpsons or something. It's just like there's something about that, like riffing and reacting to something else that I think is very like. I don't know, just it feels like very fresh and modern and like it's the kind of comedy that I like a lot. It gives you a good chance to do like references and have kind of a lore that you build up and all that stuff. And then I guess the other thing about it is that I'm not watching other stuff. You know, it's like I don't watch anything. I don't really like any new movie or TV show. Uh, it's too, I don't know, like all this like prestige stuff now, like none of it has ever grabbed me, like literally since Deadwood. Um, not much has been kind of like worth the long-term investment. Um, this is like a better for me, you know, it's kind of like a lightweight fun thing to, to follow along with in lieu of, you know, watching the latest streaming show or whatever. Not, I'm not putting that down, but it's just, it happens to, to compensate be the thing for that all the Browns depression. <laughs> yeah, there's that too. Yeah. Yeah, I so was into the, the Browns for one It's just going to turn into like a Browns therapy hour. Mm-hmm. Which I guess is a real part of Cleveland Radio. Our buddy Matt, who lives in Cleveland, now is telling us. Yeah. Browns the Browns therapy. looked good in week one, and then they played on Monday Night Football. For anybody who missed it, uh, it was the quintessential Browns performance uh, on Monday Night Football. If I remember correctly, like there were, it was such a comedy of errors that I can't even remember everything that went wrong. Didn't, they, didn't the Steelers score on an interception on the first play? I did not watch the first two and a half quarters. So I don't know. I, I think early on, yeah, there was like a pick six or a fumble six or something like that. I, th I think it was literally the first play with like 15 minutes on the clock or like 1459 on the clock. Mm -hmm. So it started off that way. Uh, I do have a couple stats here for those of you who are need to get up to speed on Brown's failure uh, uh, lore. <clears throat> um, first of all, it was um, the, the thing they kept coming back to on the Monday Night Football broadcast was, um, the Browns have not started a season two and O since 1993 uh, with Bill Belichick and Bernie Kosar. That was before the team left for Baltimore. Uh, they have not been two and O. So they kept bringing up that stat because Monday night football would have been a chance for them to actually go two and O, but no, they lost. Um, and then the, the stats are since the year 1999, uh, which is, uh, you know, when the, the franchise came back, um, you know, as the Browns after, you know, leaving for Baltimore. People probably know that whole saga. At least American listeners probably know that whole saga. But since 1999, the Browns have had 34 starting quarterbacks. That's the most in the NFL. That is insane. Which is insane. So, yeah, you break, that's like averaging over two a year, I think, if I got that right. Um, oh, that's painful. Oh, my God. I guess it's not over two a year since we're already in 2023, but it's a lot. I mean, it's, yeah, it's I mean, that, one, that's one really point painful. a lot. Um, they've had... Did, did they guarantee thrown, them all 200 million? Yeah, probably. Yeah, <laughs> and I think I think 24 of those 34 did wind up in rehab uh, and then wound up being successful on a different team after leaving the Browns. That's typically the pattern here. Dude, I'm um, rooting for the Buccaneers because of Baker Mayfield. Exactly. I, I want the best for him. 
Yeah, I just saw his name pop up on a box score the other day, and I was thinking, like, all right, let's go. Um, Since 1999, the Browns have scored 444 passing touchdowns. That's the fewest in the NFL. That's the least. Okay, so that would be over the course of 24 seasons, 444 passing touchdowns. Pretty bad. Uh, And they have thrown, since 1999, 328 interceptions. That's the second most. Uh, in the NFL since 1999. Behind, so, yeah. oh, let me guess. Maybe Dude. the Lions, maybe the Bears. Well, Stafford know. was a quarterback on the Lions for a lot of that time, so I don't know. Yeah. Dude, look at all know. this football trivia I know. What's going on? So, yeah, I, I sent you guys that stat screenshot uh, and said, hey, look, at least we were the second worst for the interception, so not it's not, not all is lost. But, oh, did you text uh, yeah. that to us? Yeah, at some point in there, I, oh, I didn't. I didn't see that. We have our Browns griping group chat, well, dude. Right? Dude, what about the Deshaun Watson? So if they cut him after this year, they still owe him two mil, two hundred million. If they cut him after the season after this one, they still owe him one hundred forty million. And if they cut him the season after that one, they still owe owe him seventy million dollars. It's awesome. I had I did not know that. And, I don't follow the contracts. And dude, I'm sorry. Like like the worst part of that game on Monday were the two face masks. I mean, one of them was deliberate. Mm-hmm. Like you want a tough guy on your team, but you don't want him to be the quarterback like that. I mean, that just mm-hmm. shows. Oh, I mean, that's bad. That just doesn't seem. I don't know, man. They were doing a thing where, you know, look, the Browns looked great in Week One. And going into that Monday Night Football game, if you're the broadcaster, your incentive is to be sure to hype up the Browns, you know, keep the drama of this game alive and, you know, run with the narrative that these are two good teams facing each other, blah, blah, blah. So they did this whole diatribe at one point about how amazing the energy is on this Browns defense, about how coach uh, Jim Schwartz, who I think used to be the Lions coach, right? He's our defensive coach now, I think, my defensive coordinator, how like... um you know, he's really big on, um, like, uh, what do you call it? Like swagger. Uh, and so like, he has a thing where if they like make a good play on defense, you actually get in trouble if you're caught not celebrating. Like he wants the the squad to be celebrating and showboating and stuff like the exact opposite of like, you know, the kind of stuff that you would hear people, you know, complaining about when we were kids, like this too much showboating in football, whatever. So it's like, that's cool. They're in the middle of doing this whole thing. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Like, whatever, you know, this defense has a swagger. Immediately, (laughs) immediately, they like fucked up a play terribly. I can't remember what the specific instance was, but it was like, yeah, like committed some holding penalty or something like that. Like before he could even finish the sentence talking about that. So that was another pretty prototypical Browns moment. Yeah. Well, I can't wait for their game this week. Yeah. Who do they play? The Titans, I think. I was looking ahead. I don't know. Did they seem better than we are? <laughs> That's for sure. The other interesting thing, which is the first time I've ever seen this happen in an NFL game, is, of course, we didn't mention, like, the most Browns doubt thing is the Nick Chubb in- injury. So it's like there's one, you know, as, oh, as know. is often Dude, the that, case. That just hurts my heart. That's like yeah. the chest is, yeah. ugh. God. You have you have one thing on your team to actually feel oh, good know. about. You know, it's the star player who's just like a great guy. Everybody loves. He's got a great story of having already come back from a destroyed knee uh, and becoming, you know, one of the best backs in the game, et cetera, et cetera. 
And uh, so he gets injured, like, basically right away uh, in this game and basically just gets hit in the leg and his knee bends backwards. It's pretty obvious that it's, like, a catastrophic oh, knee tear. It's the, it's the same knee that he already blew out, like, five Jeez. years ago. Um, well, the thing, thing that's crazy about it, aside from it being a great Browns... Now, by the way, for the record, just taking a step back, my favorite Browns moment was when... Uh, this was, like, 15 years ago or something... Um, they had to actually cancel a preseason game because of lightning. Like the Browns took the field for the first time in the preseason and immediately started lightninging and they had to like call everybody off the field. It's like, it's literally the thing from Twin Peaks last week where like something happens and lightning strikes in the background immediately for like <laughs> ominous, like ham Yeah, this seems biblical. Spinning. Like I'm going yeah. through Exodus here and I don't think this is a good sign. Right. But yeah, the lightning striking moment on Monday was this Nick Chubb injury. And the thing that was unique about it to me, which I've never seen before, is that they didn't show the replay. The announcer specifically said, like, we've looked at the replay. It's as bad as you can imagine. And we're just not going to show that on TV. Um, which, like, in the past, you know, you know how it's been in the past. Like, they would show that shit over and over again. How many times did we see, you know, Willis McGahee get injured and, and celebrate it? <laughs> uh, who's that? Wait, I'm sorry. What in the Ohio State, uh, in the Ohio State national championship game when Willis McGahey got nailed, and they showed that replay over and over again. It was like a the the 180 of like a brutal injury that should not have been replayed that got replayed over and over again. Oh, I don't remember that. That name rings a bell. Yeah, I mean, I I actually don't want football to be that violent. I mean, yeah. I I don't I don't like seeing a a receiver go over the middle and then just get blindsided by a defensive back. Yeah. And and his body goes one way and his head goes the other way. And, like, he gets up and he's fine. And he may even play in the next, uh, you know, um, snap. But, dude, I don't like seeing that. That's not fun. Yeah. I mean, it's not even, like, dude, just, like, good tackles. I'm sorry to be an old man from the Midwest, but just good tackles. Good fundamentals, good techniques. You know, that's what I want to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, there's this player... I think it was for the Browns. I forget his name. I don't know people on the defense that well. I mean, I'm, I'm really just getting acquainted with the team this year. But, uh, yeah, some guy made a great tackle on that game on Monday. Anyway. You know, just like reached in like between two guards or something, two offensive linemen, and just, you know, grabbed with his hand. It's just like this feat of strength. You know, I want to see stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Mm. It was probably Miles Garrett. Miles Garrett. He's good. Yeah, there's a a couple good guys there. He's like the star pass rushing type dude. I don't know the team very well either. You know, you're talking about this. um, you're, You're watching these YouTubers who are, you know, you'd like to make fun of. I really think you need to get into the Fast and the Furious movies because <laughs> this is just like a hotbed of this kind of analysis. Mm-hmm. Okay, like that guy on YouTube, like you know he's bad and you know you're just making fun of him. That's what you're thinking when you're watching the Fast and the Furious movies, but then they'll spin it around on you and they'll go, oh, this is actually really good. Mm-hmm. It's like The Room. I know this doesn't make sense. It's like The Room if The Room was a good movie. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting to see how how they play that out. Well, I can picture that because that's kind of what I thought about The Expendables, which, by the way, there's a fourth one of those coming out now, too. Yeah, The Expendables. Right, exactly. There's a four in there. Doing that move. Thanks, guys. 
Numb three years. Right. Yeah. Yes, I guess I I look forward to that, but uh, I saw Fast X. It was really good. Mm Mm-hmm. Just trying to relate with you, homie. Mm-hmm. Well, what was good about and dude, it? Dude, there's I mean, this post-credit scene, so The Rock was in it, and I thought, it, I mean, I thought The Rock was going to be out of it because Vin Diesel is, I guess, he's just annoying. Like he's not a bad person or anything. I think he's just a very annoying person, and if you don't have to work with him, you won't. Like if you're Michelle Rodriguez, obviously you're going to work with Vin Diesel because you're not really doing much else. But if you're The Rock, then you just won't. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, The Rock's not coming back, but sorry to spoil it, but in the post credit scene, he is back. And then he really, you know how he says son of a bitch, he says some bitch. Mm-hmm. But he kind of draws it together. Well, in the post credit scene, he just says some bitch. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like really drawing it out. And it was just like the perfect ending to this movie. Like half the time you think, oh, is this serious? Half the time... Oh, it's too good to to be serious. And then he just sums it up perfectly at the end. Like, yeah, that this is, we're just having fun. Relax, guys. I don't think there's cheesy stuff in here and cheesy lines. And that the first 25 minutes of the movie is just <laughs> Vin Diesel's character, Dominic Toretto, going around talking to everybody about the importance of family. But there's really sweet stunts, too, so. What do you think is so annoying about Vin Diesel? If you had to try to, like, pinpointed or give an example is it because he's like cheesy there, there's it's okay to be cheesy but there's just no self-awareness vin diesel is uh no i don't think he's an asshole i i think he's genuinely a nice guy i just don't think he has any self-awareness or maybe he's just really dumb or something but like how would it manifest like what would be a thing that would happen that would make it so like okay i don't want to work with this guy anymore like he's trying to show you pictures of his kid or something like it's annoying like that way like he's like cloying or is he like there's talking this about how interview rich he is? with him and this and this woman i don't know her name but just some woman's interviewing him for some movie i forget what movie and he is just being weird not like sexual weird or like coming on to her right there's nothing you can point your finger at he is just making silly sounds i i don't know it, it doesn't make any sense it's very much like a scene in the room and it's okay if it's a movie because there's a screen there and you don't have to hang out with Tommy Wiseau. But mm-hmm. if you're this woman interviewing her and you have this awkward laugh, like her, she's obviously, her her mouth is smiling, but her eyes are saying, oh, this is really weird. I mean, not, not get me out of here, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not that. I don't think he's a bad guy. I think he's probably a good guy. Very interesting. I would really like to know like what exactly that is. It's like he's been making jokes his entire life, but nobody's... When people have told him he's not funny, he just doesn't hear it. It's mm-hmm. like how your jokes would be if you've been making jokes for your entire life and you have no honest feedback on it because mm-hmm. you had no awareness to begin with. That's what it is, dude. Hmm. That's what it is. It's like a child. It's like a toddler making jokes. It's a joke that my toddler would make. Mm-hmm. And it's cute when a two-year-old does it because she doesn't know any better. But it's like you never learn that that wasn't funny. And eventually when she's four, you're just going to be like, okay, that, that's stupid. You, you don't make that joke. But he never got that. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. It's like a two and a half. It's like a toddler making jokes. Yeah, that's it. 
Dude, that that's what it is. <laughs> Dude. I'm just uh you know, you know, Saving Private Ryan was on the other day and I caught the beginning of it and he's in it. But uh Yeah, he, he's I, I think I don't think he does much in that movie. I just saw him, you know, I remembered that he was in it and I noticed him, but he wasn't like kinda making too big of an impression in the scene. And he looks totally different and he looks very young uh, and, you know, not as roided out or whatever it wound up being with him. Um, yeah. His face changed a little. He kind of has a Joe Rogan thing going on. Right. Exactly. You've had like so, four puberties since 1998. Right. Right. So it just kind of made me wonder like, you know, look, okay. So this guy basically very early on in his career, he works with Spielberg um, you know, you, you, you got in order to land that gig, you know, that's a huge, uh, impressive ensemble in that movie. Like all the people who were in, uh, Tom Hanks's, uh, troop or whatever in Saving Private Ryan are all basically like big famous actors now, him included. So that's like a pretty good litmus test. So like, yeah, what is it about a person where it's like, you can pass all of those tests, uh, and yet still be like annoying enough that you have this reputation that people don't want to work with you now. It's, very interesting you know like like kiss is like this right like nobody wants to work with kiss but that's because they're just straight up assholes and it's it's like pretty easy to tell like if you like watch gene simmons like interview footage you can just tell like okay well i get it you're a jerk who thinks you're the best thing in the world and people just wind Dude, up not I liking love gene you. simmons well of course you do but i'm just you know <laughs> you'll get where i'm talking about though <laughs> Really? I mean, people think he's a jerk. Oh my god! I, I never yeah, would the, have guessed the most that. Notoriously hated guys. To yeah, of course, yeah. Just oh, like super, cool. you know, think they're better than everybody. You know, which I get it. There's something, t- you know, there's something. Uh, I relate with that. Yeah, there's something that we do find value in in that. But it's like, at, like at least that's an understandable version of this. But for it to just be like he's weird, like my weird cousin is weird. It's just hard for me to imagine Vin Diesel being that way, but I guess he is. I don't know. Yeah. Well, go look up interviews with him. I'm sure there's some YouTube clip while you're on watching your autistic friends. Just there's, there's probably a clip of, of Vin Diesel doing weird stuff on set or something. Yeah. Did you ever see Boiler Room, the movie where they're stockbrokers? I did see that. Yeah. I love that movie. Him, he's in it, and so is Giovanni Ribisi, who's also in Saving Private Ryan. He's the medic. Uh, just a little crossover there. Great movie. One of those like good '90s, late '90s movies. Back before, uh, like back at the tail end of like that kind of era of movies, in my opinion. What do you mean that kind of movie? I don't know. I don't know what to call that. Like just movies that felt like they were original, and you know, quality. Um, you know, before the sort of like uh, IP franchisization of everything and and all that kind of stuff, I just thought it was like a cool, cool movie. Yeah, yeah now they'd time. get those uh, actors together and do it like a Marvel movie, Batman versus Superman. Yeah, or I guess I would compare it to like The Big Short. It's like if you're doing a movie about like you know what goes on on Wall Street like nowadays, like you have to interrupt it with like these like meta aware narrations that explain what's going on. There's actually narration in boiler room too, but it's not the same, you know, it doesn't have that same tone uh, of sort of like soyness that uh, the big short or even Wolf of wall street, in my opinion, kind of have. Yeah. If you've made it through vice, if you're a person out there who's made it through vice, I don't want to hear it. 
<laughs> I don't want to hear about you. I don't want to know that you exist. I, I just want to live in this world where I don't think anybody's ever made it through that movie because of the ridiculous voiceovers and yeah. And it's That's, a shame yeah, because there weird. should be, it's, it's, it's great subject matter. There should be a great movie that does do a takedown of, you know, the, both the evil, but also the banality and ridiculousness of the evil uh, of, you know, Dick Cheney and the Bush administration and their, you know, uh, PNAC agenda and all that. Like that's obviously that's like meat and potatoes stuff that like we should love to see a great movie of, yeah, but, but when you do it in this me. way, yeah. Right. When you do don't, it in this way, where it's like, me. yeah, it's, God. it sucks. It's a shame. Yeah. But, I mean, I yeah. couldn't believe that when the voiceover guy just came out and said right in the beginning, it's just like a super lame way. In other words, this is another way of saying he was a jerk. <laughs> oh God. It, it was almost as bad as the end of the Atlas Shrug part three, where it said the end dot, 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 or is it? <laughs> I had a good laugh at both of those. Man, I got to tell you. I guess in a room kind of way, yeah. I, I don't know if I remember seeing Atlas Shrugged Part 3. I must have watched it. Oh, I dude, you blocked it out of your memory. Yeah, I must have watched it way back when and just forgot. I definitely saw 1 and 2. Because didn't they like change all of the actors between 1 and 2? <laughs> yeah, dude, you know my joke about that. They're, they're just testing your uh, power of conceptualization. <laughs> Right. Yeah. If you can't abstract away from yeah. concretes, then I'm sorry, you're, just... you're not going to like the movie anyway. So right, right. You you have to know Randy and epistemology. Like obviously, <laughs> these are just examples of Dagny Taggarts, but you have to subsume them into an abstracted category. <laughs> Duh. Dude. Yeah. Eliminate the differences. <laughs> Tie together what's similar. Come on. It's awesome. not doing that well enough. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, I, I should watch that. I should just watch all the Alice Shrugged movies. That would oh, be dude. If you like thing. watching ridiculous YouTube videos, yeah, there's there's a lot of content in there for you. Yeah, you're right. It would probably fit right in there. Those yeah, would be would good have riff a blast, tracks, dude. You, I mean, I had a blast. It was fun. And at the end, when it said the end, dot dot dot, or is it? I I, la- I had a good laugh, man. It felt good. I I I probably told the story in the podcast five times already, but I just. I'll tell it again. Like Please. that was one of the first movies that me and Ellen ever went to go see together uh, was, I guess it was the first one or maybe it was the second one. Um, and, you know, obviously like I'm a fan of the content, but it does drag on, you know, as a movie, arguably uh, <laughs> to put it mildly, but whatever, you know, we're, we're watching it. We're kind of sitting near the back of the theater and the, throughout the entire movie, there was this old guy like sitting way up front in the front row and like every five minutes he would do, he would do like one of those loud performative yawns where he just at full volume would just go, <laughs> like, that. like he was just, I don't know if it was cause he hated it. Like he was just fed up with what he was seeing. I think it was more just that he was a completely oblivious. <laughs> like he got into that old man realm where it's just like, well, I can get away with anything I want at this point. I don't care anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's what Vin Diesel goes through, man. Like just zero feedback from society. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's my last memory of Atlas Shrugged. So you you think he was being no? So you don't think he was being performative? He's just oblivious. I think if I had to guess, I think that he was genuinely oblivious. Yeah, no feedback. Like no one ever, no one was about to tell him like that's a little bit rude at this point. Dude, how do you tell somebody in the movie theater that they're yawning too loudly? I mean, I've told people to be quiet if they're talking, but that's obvious. 
Right. Because it's like you're talking. It's like, what, you're not allowed to yawn? <laughs> I'm yawning too out loudly. Like, it doesn't seem feasible. I mean, I understand how that would obviously be annoying, but. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a like, good troll. It's like when it's somebody's good... breathing too loudly. Like, <laughs> when you're in the middle of a fight with your wife, like, God, you just breathe all wrong. It's yeah. Like that kind of thing. Right. When Flanders notices when we're doing it at church. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. I've been there. I've definitely been there. Yeah. Uh, anyway, should we go into the Orchid's Curse here? Please. All right. Twin Peaks, episode 12, uh, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. 205, a.k.a. the Orchid's Curse. The uh, Log Lady intro is uh, interesting this time. Uh, here, here we go. Sometimes nature plays tricks on us, and we imagine we are something other than what we truly are. Is this a key to life in general? or the case of the two-headed schizophrenic. Both heads thought the other was following itself. Finally, when one head wasn't looking, the other shot the other right between the eyes, and of course, killed itself. Interesting stuff. I mean, obviously, like, duality, you know, we're going to get into the White Lodge, the Black Lodge, the Good Cooper, the Evil Cooper. We're not really there yet, though. It is early for that stuff to be kind of put out onto the table when it comes to Twin Peaks. But when you get to the larger david lynch cosmology you know this is this is everything for him basically all of his good movies are all exactly this is this a key to life in general or the case of the two-headed schizophrenic i mean that's exactly the plot line of mulholland drive it's exactly the plot line of lost highway it's exactly the plot line of inland empire if you look at it in a certain way i would argue um and yeah it winds up being obviously central to twin peaks as well this this uh yeah Imagining we are something other than what we truly are, and the question of whether that's the truth, or that's a deeper truth, or whether it's uh, you know self-destructive, self-annihilating. Yeah, how does it come up in this episode? I don't know that it does. And it, it, it's one of those things again where these log lady or intros just are not. Laura's diary, all the yeah. stuff that she had, and I mean yeah. that story that Donna tells. Yeah. But that's not like it's out of character for for Donna in that story. It just, I don't know. I think the Log Lady intros are not necessarily tied to the episode so tightly. I think they came along later, and they're just kind of about the themes generally. Um, and Well, yeah. Horn is kind of playing two faces to Cooper, I guess. Yeah, that's true. And Cooper's kind of like, you know, acting outside the boundaries of like his official, you know, legal mandate. Uh, when it comes to the Audrey stuff, it could have been self-annihilating. You know, there's a couple times when he's going to be in danger because of that. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, the episode starts off, as so often is the case, with uh, Cooper waking up at the Great Northern and uh, kind of just, you know, recalling, like, he's still injured. Like, he just got shot in the ribs, you know, not that long ago. But to be clear, only the second time with the cowlick. Um, yes, that's right. That's right. He does wake up with the colic again, like when he woke up after the, the, the pivotal dream, uh, at the very beginning. Yeah. You think that's important? That's a good point. Well, um, it must be, I, I don't know exactly what it signifies. I mean, he does go to rescue Audrey so it's like in a way he does see the note. 
Yeah, there is about to be like another sort of, yeah, breakthrough, so to speak, kind of like the dream, but, but not really, but kind of. It could also be just the thing of we're getting into these later episodes that are, you know, the, the gruel is getting a little bit thinner. You know, David Lynch isn't directing anymore. Maybe who, whoever directed this episode wanted to call back and, and revive or, you know, grab onto something from when the show yeah. was at its peak. The, the whale's dead bodies decaying quickly here. Yeah. Although the, we got at least like two more bangers coming up after this one. So I'm still feeling good. <clears throat> But yeah, yeah, Cooper wakes up and, and is talking to Diane in his tape recorder and says he's going to start off the morning with his yogic practice. And today he's going to do a headstand. So uh, he does his headstand and says the classic deadpan, Diane, I am now upside down. So that's a good one. Uh, it's a, that Cooper charm again. Uh, so but are, are his feet supposed to be against the wall? I don't know. I, did, I wasn't watching his form. What, what did you think? It didn't look like they were against the wall. But then why did he go over to the wall? Know, Maybe we just in case that, he falls back over. Yeah, we already know he has the gravity boots too because we've seen him use those. So, but I don't think he was in this case. Well, a headstand's a different discipline, Derek. Oh, okay, there you go. Good point. Mm. Good point. It's not a handstand. Um. Yeah. So when he's upside down, he notices that this note is underneath his bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if I have this right, he did see and pick up this note when it was slipped under his door right before he got shot. Right, but then he's forgotten about it ever since then. I would guess that's what's going on. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true because he he sees the note and he says, you know, the giant did tell me that I forgot something, um, and so yeah, uh, the note is from Audrey, of course, uh, and it says I've gone up north to see Jack. Maybe he knows something, uh, something like that. Um, okay, so with where we are in the plot right now, this is really. It's like not that important, but I guess like if you're really looking at this, uh, like just going based on what we actually know just from watching the TV show, all that Cooper really knows is that Audrey has been kidnapped somewhere, right? He he doesn't think until he reads this note that she's at One-Eyed Jack's, I guess. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Although, like, would it be that hard to guess? Like, didn't Audrey already say to cooper like girls go there like they have girls there like didn't she already explain one-eyed jacks to cooper in the past or do i have that wrong i thought she did dude, dude these are great questions i'm making notes for the next time we watch this yeah this show i'm just like wondering like did they really not have any clue where she was like, like once once ben horn tells cooper like people have kidnapped my daughter like I don't, I don't know. I was just wondering. Like they've already been to One Eyed Jacks. Like they already like. I don't know. They already know that Jacques Renault worked there. Like I, I don't know. Anyway, just, just it going. seems obvious to us. But maybe if you haven't, no. But he's been to One Eyed Jacks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at. Is like yeah. I don't know how much of like this is a breakthrough or not. But but anyway, um, that's like something to think about for next time. Yeah. Um, but the takeaway from this obviously is like, okay, so now Cooper knows what he needs to know to actually go mount a rescue mission. Whereas nominally what he's supposed to be doing based on the last episode is they're waiting for a call from the kidnappers so that Coop can go retrieve Audrey for Ben Horn. That was the agreement they struck you know, in the last episode. Um, okay. Lucy is leaving town. She's going to see her sister who just had a baby. Um, that's, you know, setting us up in the sheriff's office, uh, for the, episode. have a safe trip, Lucy. Yeah. And, and Th- like, that's yeah. what Cooper says. 
Yeah, she doesn't want to leave yet. They're kind of getting her out the door and telling her, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Cooper is walking in as she's leaving and holds the door open for her. And, and yeah, basically, there, you know, there's like a little bit of light comedy there that like, you know, it'll, it'll be good to be rid of her for a little while and, and good for her to just chill out and get away as well. But my point of saying all that was, you know, making fun of Cooper for being my mom in a sense. Like, that's what he says to Lucy. <laughs> Have a safe trip. <laughs> yeah. Just one of my knocks against Cooper. <laughs> Although overall, I do like him, I, I admit. But Okay, next we got the uh, salesman or whatever you would call it. The, the guy who provides the... Um, he must work for an insurance company. Right. Basically, this guy is at at Shelley's house. Yeah, and he's setting up like the gear that they're going to need to have Leo and his comatose, you know, self with his wheelchair and everything in the house. He has this like hoist that can that they're installing that can be used to like transfer Leo in and out of his chair. And uh, there's like again like a, a kind of like old timey comedy bit going on where like Bobby's <laughs> trying to play it up like they want the very best you know, for, you know, dear cousin Leo, Bobby's playing like he's the cousin uh, and like putting on a show in front of Shelly that like, you know, this is going to be good. But then like Shelly leaves the room for a second and Bobby's like, come on, man, get your shit together. And he's like, look, you know, after I take my cut, there's not much money left over for this equipment to actually be any good because it's like malfunctioning and, and all that stuff. So anyway, whatever. But it winds up with a little physical comedy where uh, Bobby and Shelly go off to make out as they are want to do. Uh, and this guy is like stuck in the like hoist getting slammed back and forth on the wall. It's pretty good. Dude, uh, plus the FTR-esque wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where does they Super get that from? No, no, that seems really expensive because you must have gotten that from a museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like um, it's made out of that stuff that like your your grandma's like beach condo would have like a chair that's made out of this like uh woven uh, wicker yeah, it's, it's stuff. like a wicker kind of <laughs> yeah yeah totally um <laughs> total grandma furniture just like in the Cairo museum like all those display cases exactly yeah like oh this 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 museum is from the 1890s and you didn't even change the cases that things are in since the 1890s <laughs> yeah, yeah th- this yeah this furniture this wood piece of furniture doesn't make sense unless it smells like stale cigarettes yeah if without that i just don't see it sorry yeah the cairo museum was crazy like the museum belongs in a museum like the signs like the signs that they have typed up are like as old and as worthy of historical study as the things that they are labeling totally dude yeah (laughs) yeah it's great um okay next we have the pre-trial hearing for leland uh recall from the last episode that the judge has come into town and the the state prosecutor has come into town um and so they they set up a sort of impromptu courtroom uh, at the roadhouse, um, which is a cool um, setting. And so yeah, they're doing a pretrial hearing for Leland to talk about bail. Um, and again, this is one of those things that you have to keep in mind. Like, we're not talking about Leland being on trial for killing Laura here, right? We're talking about Leland being on trial for killing Jacques Renault in the hospital. And when you're a multiple time Twin Peaks watcher, like it's easy to lose track of that that fact. Um, but yeah, we're talking about, uh, Jacques Renault. So when they're talking about the issue of bail, you know, the prosecutor is of course saying like, look, this guy's, it's a heinous crime. Uh, and this guy has been acting unstable all around town. 
um, you know, we think he's a risk and, and we should we should set a high bail or we should deny him bail or whatever. And then it turns out that Sheriff Truman actually stands up and speaks in, in Leland's favor uh, and just talks about what a, you know, well-liked and respected and trustworthy member of the community uh, he is. So, you know, the judge, empathetic. Truman, just, I, I just, I love, love how he has zero intuition. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Well, Leland... Uh, what's her face? Yeah, right. It'll, that'll become relevant later. Yeah, 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 for sure. And so, yeah, they they take it easy on Leland. They they release him on his own recognizance. Um, and one interesting thing about that, for whatever it's worth, I don't really know what it's worth, is that Ben is sitting there, like at the bar, Ben Horn, uh, and just kind of like rolling his eyes sort of at the whole affair and when and when they I did have notice this, that they have this sort of like heartfelt thing of releasing leland and, and showing him mercy and ben sort of gets up and kind of walks away in a huff like man this is so stupid these people are so beneath me or whatever again it's like if it's your first time watching the show and you don't know what's going on maybe like that's a good sort of red herring like it's leading you on into some sort of theory that ben is involved in laura's death maybe or that he was involved in Jacques' death. I don't know. Like, there's something there. But I don't know yeah, exactly what it is. It's so hard. Yeah, it's so difficult to think. What would I be thinking if this was the first time I was watching it? Which right. the first time I was watching it wasn't too many years ago. Yeah. So maybe I should know, but. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, yeah. And then okay. what's, what's with Andy drawing Leland but not drawing his face? Oh, yeah. That was another, like, little sort of awkward humor moment where, yeah, Andy's doing like a courtroom sketch, but since he's sitting in the back of the room, he can just draw the back of, of Leland's head. And so they're like, yeah, that's good, Andy. We'll try getting a little bit more face next time. Yeah. But now that you know that Leland's the murderer, you think, I don't know. I guess when I was watching, I was thinking, yeah, there, there's something undrawable about his face. Cause it's not really his face. Yeah, that's true. And it's evocative of the drawing of Bob, which has been, you know, like shown many times and has been important mm-hmm. to the story in previous episodes. So it's like if you could see his face, what face would you be seeing? You know, because that that has come up yeah. as well. Right. So, yeah, it's a good way of thinking about it. Have we yeah, already I like that seen, theory better. Have we seen Leland's face turn into Bob's face yet? No. At this point in the show, that has not no. ever happened. OK, nope. Okay, that will happen. Sorry, spoiler. Yeah, I mean, I that, it's not a spoiler. Watching ahead. Yeah, okay. Um. All right. So then we're gonna get we're gonna wind up. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Derek. You, we have seen Leland look very creepy. Yes. Yes. Uh, there is that one scene. I mean, it's actually scary. Mm-hmm. That actor. I mean, we always talk about what a great actor is. He does just such a great job. That when you're looking back on, it, you're like, oh yeah, obviously he's the murderer. Like, look at the way that he he's looking at Maddie as she leaves the the house, mm-hmm. and he's just sitting there in the dark. Right. It's, it's extremely ominous. Yeah, I think that's actually what I was thinking of. Is yeah, there's that moment where she sneaks off, and he's actually been there, sitting in the dark. Yeah, he does such a good job making a creepy face that you think it's Bob's face. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so next we have Donna visiting Harold, the shut-in again. And so, you know, now she knows that Harold has the diary and that, you know, it can't leave the apartment and blah, blah, blah. And she obviously wants to know everything that's in there. 
Um, so she says, okay, I'll make you a deal. I'll tell you my life story. Cause this is Harold's thing. You know, people come to him, tell him their stories. He writes it down, etc. Um, I'll tell you my life story. If you let me read Laura's diary and he says, okay, I'll make you a deal. I'll read it to you, but it can't physically leave this room. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're striking up a deal here, but also kind of like flirting with each other, uh, in their super weird way. Um, Excellent, excellent line here for all, all like incels in our listening audience. If you're looking for a great line, <laughs> he goes, I grew up in Boston. Well, actually, I grew up in books. Like, oh man, this is the panties drop when you tell them that. You know, they love hearing that. It's a great <laughs> well, line to ac- use. In according the to ninth grade through an embarrassing long time, Diz, yeah, that, that is true. That's right. I, I still right. kind of think that. <laughs> I'm still working on that issue, so don't don't make too much fun of everything. So it makes me feel bad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so Donna's you know testing this guy's limits. You know, I, I don't I don't know what to really say about Donna here. She wants that diary, but I also think that she really likes Harold, and I think she's a conflicted high schooler who's gone through a lot of turmoil. Uh, so well, I don't think well, I'm looking just at like it. Lucy. I mean, it's just like Lucy going after Dick Tremaine. He's, he's right. the opposite of Andy and this guy's the opposite of James. And that's right. what women do. Yeah. And it, it's not, I don't think it's either that Donna is using him or that Donna is naively head over heels for him. I think it's an actual genuine and good portrayal of a real like complicated dynamic there for a confused kid. So part mm-hmm. of what she's doing here is, is flirting with him and enjoying the, the process of flirting with him. Um, but she also does have an angle. She wants that diary. She cares about Laura. And um, so she's sort of testing his boundaries and she grabs the diary. Like she flirts with them to kind of like, so he lets his guard down, but then she grabs the diary and goes outside with it. And he immediately tries to follow her and collapses like a pathetic uh, loser. Uh, which again, panties dropping all over the place when you like collapse to the ground and need to be cradled well, back to cognition. Well, well there, there's something about here of like him collecting, at least in Laura's case, like the feminine, like mm-hmm. the anima, like the souls. And he, in a sense, is like ha- has castrated himself. He, he's like this eunuch protecting mm-hmm. these these fair maidens. And growing orchids, but, that's another kind of like, yeah, that's symbolic. Yeah, here. those are obviously vaginas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's like, he's, he's emasculated himself in order to devote his life to, to, to collecting these women, you know, at least the, the sole aspect of women. Right. And, and they go never... in and try to retrieve that. And I think it's, a, I mean, we'll get to it, but they, they'll go in and try to retrieve the, the physical feminine in, in the case of Audrey. Mm-hmm. But, um, and we never do really know yeah. the answer to this question. Like, does Harold ever have sex with Laura? We we don't know that. They say that she had sex with, I think, three different men the day that she died. That was presumably Leo, Jacques, and... Uh, I mean, I don't know. Her dad? Like, her could be her dad. It could it could have been Harold. It could have I mean, been we James. We know that it could he's have been had sex with her before, so yeah. sorry to just spurt that out. No, but. I mean, it's bad, but yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like, we don't really know. It could have been Harold. Um, we do see them sort of like making out in Firewalk with me, but it's a completely like tormented, like terrible scene it's not like they're about to bone down hardcore or anything like that it's 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 much more emotional and and um harrowing 
Um, so yeah, we don't really know. I think it just goes back to that thing of, yeah, like what is Harold's really role as like a sexual person here? It it might be nothing. It might, it might all be sublimated into writing down people's stories instead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, we're going to get back to Harold in a minute, but that's where we are for now. Um, okay. There's another thing that needs to happen at the de facto courthouse, uh, and at the roadhouse, which is they have to have a hearing about what's going on with Leo. Uh, who's still in a coma. Uh, this was a little bit interesting. Um, it's hard to get a read on what's happening at first, but then they do a good job of of playing it out. They're doing uh, basically uh, a ruling about whether or not Leo is going to be able to be um, released to to go home, uh, to, to go like, you know, under the care of Shelley uh, at home. <clears throat> and uh, so again, you know, we have the 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 uh defender they're they're trying to figure out if he was competent to stand trial oh that's right you're right competent to stand trial yeah it it winds up with the conclusion that they're going to send him home Um, but it's because really what they're doing is deciding whether they're going to try him yeah that's right Right. um so first first the defender the 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 public defender is saying like look here's a a, a, an ecg showing like a normal person's brain activity and here's leo's it's completely flat uh, he, he's, you know, basically a vegetable. This poor young man is not competent to stand trial. <clears throat> and then the prosecutor gets up and is on the other side of the argument and just says, like, you know, this is an extremely heinous crime. And, you know, we have to take into account the fact that this isn't just about, you know, uh, uh, having a trial for this person. It's about, you know, allowing a sense of justice and retribution for the townspeople who have suffered this tragedy. Blah, blah, blah. And here they are talking about Laura. Right. So again, if you're if if you've seen this before, it it can be a little bit confusing. Wait, what's the deal here? Like I thought we we're just talking about burning down the mill, um, but th- so and and so it gets confusing because the judge, <clears throat> who's this sort of like moral hero that we talked about in the previous episode, he's like rolling his eyes and getting fed up with the prosecutor right away, uh, and and you're thinking like, well, wait a minute, what's he all pissed off about? So then they go over to the side, the judge and Truman and Cooper sit down and have a drink to talk things over. And he says, uh, Cooper is Leo, our man, uh, talking about Laura, you know, he wants to know, like, you know, if I'm going to bring this guy to trial, like, what do you really think? Is is this going to be our guy? Yeah. And so Cooper says, no, I don't think it's him. And I think in time, the real killer will come to light, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, he asks Harry, what's the temperature of the town? Do they want uh, a lynching? Uh, and he says, no, they want the right man, you know, and the judge says, you know, they don't need a circus or Truman says they don't need a circus, uh, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, this is really what the judge is thinking about. He's trying to do right by Twin Peaks uh, here. And I think it was kind of cool to just see that sort of calculus uh, playing out here in the scene. I mean, it is strange that they're at the the roadhouse. Mm-hmm. I mean, why wouldn't they go to the, the town hall wherever they were, where they, they were meeting in the beginning, I think, in the first episode? Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting choice, and it'll come back. It's, it's like the temperature. They're trying to take the temperature of Twin Peaks, and that's the roadhouse. Yeah. Yeah, I think the roadhouse is, you know, pivotal, um, and it's it's... It's, it's some sort of kind of nexus, you know, in the mythology of Twin Peaks. You know, it's it's also where the Miss Twin Peaks contest happens. You know, later on, it winds up being pivotal for a lot of different things. Um, but yeah. yeah. 
Um, another thing to Black notice: Yukon Sucker Punches is the drink they had. By the yeah. way, I wrote that down. Yeah, Sid mixes not sure, up. Not sure what that matters. Maybe it'll come up later. Well, one thing I noticed about that is that Cooper never touches his. He goes to drink it like three different times and always hesitates and doesn't drink it. Um, so yeah, I thought that was noticeable. The judge and Truman both drink theirs. Yeah. It just sounds like a Michigan fan. <laughs> now we're talking. Yeah. Um, the judge also tells Cooper, keep your eye on the woods uh, in, in this conversation. And that'll come up later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Um, in, into plot number C or whatever we're at here. Big Ed brings Nadine home from the hospital. Uh, and that's the subplot where she's like regressed to a high schooler. She rips the door off the refrigerator. Um, that's it. Little little comic relief. Forgettable scene. Yep. Um, okay, Ben Horn meets with Mr. Tojimura, the mysterious Japanese businessman who came into the Great Northern in the previous episode. And Mr. Tojimura has his uh, assistant with him. They already have a prospectus and uh, commitment letters from investors, and they're trying to make an offer very suddenly with, without any warning to Ben uh, to buy him out, uh, and they hand over a $5 million check uh, to Ben Horn to, to buy out the uh, Ghostwood project, uh, the thing that he's been trying to sell to the Swedes and the Icelanders since the beginning of the show. Um, yeah, so Ben's got a $5 million check in his hands. Later on, he'll wind up saying, uh, not bad for a day's work. Yep. When he sends Cooper off to what he thinks will be his death. Right. So the next thing that's happening with, with Ben is that they're trying to arrange this ransom thing for Audrey. And the other thing that's interesting about it is that Hank is hanging around, right? So we've already seen in the past that Hank is acting as a sort of like henchman uh, doing Ben Horn's dirty work. Um, you know, he gave Hank the green light to kill Leo. We saw that happen uh, you know, it back in season one. And so again, Hank is, is hanging around here. And, um, so anyway, Cooper shows up, they get the call about the ransom money. Uh, Jean Renault, you know, gives these instructions about like, go to this road. There's a failed amusement park, leave the money by the carousel, blah, blah, blah. None of that is going to matter. Um, but Ben and Cooper are there listening to the phone call. And then when Cooper goes off with the briefcase full of money, um, Hank pops out again and Ben says, you know, to tail him, you know, to follow him, make sure this all goes down, make sure that Audrey gets home safe. Um, Cooper isn't going to make it back. You know, Cooper isn't coming back home because you know, as far as from Ben's perspective, he's already spoken to Jean Renault and part of the deal is to hand over Cooper, the guy who killed Renault's brother um, or is responsible for his brother's death. Put it that way. Two of his brother's death. Um Okay, and then finally... Well, um, well, side note here. Uh, could Ben Horn's cigar be any longer? I know. They're crazy. The it's just obnoxious. Yeah, the, the, the comedically Freudian cigars. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Ben tells him, bring back the money if you can, too. Uh, and that's it. All right, now basically for, I think basically the rest of the episode here, we're kind of in parallel doing two secret missions. I like the way the third act of this episode is, is structured here. We're like side by side, yeah, cutting back and forth. Heists. Yeah, we have yeah, yeah, two, two different aspects of the feminine too, the physical and the psyche. Oh, very interesting. Wow, that's, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Because on the one hand 
we have to actually go rescue Audrey from One-Eyed Jacks. And then on the other hand, the thing that unfolds next in the show is that uh, Audrey, or Audrey, um, Donna and Maddie are putting together a plan to uh, work as a team to, to exfiltrate Laura's diary from Harold's apartment. You know, so Donna's going to go seduce him. Uh, and, and while, you know, he's occupied, Maddie's going to sneak in once Donna gives her the signal and figure out how to break into that secret bookshelf that, that Harold has and grab Laura's diary. Um, and again, going back to what we were saying before, you know, they're talking about this plan and Maddie goes like, I thought you liked this guy. And Donna goes, I do. <laughs> you know, I just, it, it speaks to the thing we were talking about before, just about how this is genuine conflict. You know, this, she does like this guy, but that doesn't mean she, she doesn't also need that diary. Yeah, both things are true. Mm -hmm. uh, and while we're hatching plans, uh, over at One-Eyed Jacks, uh, Jean, Renault, uh, and Blackie are talking about how they're going to you know, take care of this whole Audrey uh, ransom situation. Um, they're going to OD Audrey on heroin. Not a bad way to go. Um, and uh, and he's, got a, he's got a knife hidden away, taxi driver style. Uh, that he's going to use to like injure or, or debilitate Cooper and, and kill him. Um, not a very good plan, by the way. Like, oh, I'm going to hand over the briefcase and then a knife is going to pop out. Like, so what? You slash his wrist. That doesn't mean you killed him. Like, he's a fed. I would, I would not be, yeah, comfortable doing that. <laughs> not, not a good. Just the fact that it stabs a strawberry successfully when he's practicing. I don't think that means that it's going to take <laughs> down a federal agent. Whatever. Well, I guess he just wanted to stab Blackie all along, maybe. Mm-hmm. Sorry to spoil that. By no, the way, heroin paraphernalia uh, seems advanced for a TV network in the 90s, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, they, they got it down. It was the I grunge mean, era, that, so... That, this isn't Pulp Fiction, so... Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so then... Oh, one more comedy scene. Andy calls for his sperm test results and finds out that he's... Uh, it's not three men on a fishing trip. It's a whole damn town. That's the, those are the words that Doc Hayward left uh, for Andy. And there's like a comedy phone call there where the lady on the phone is trying to explain the test results and basically treating him like a, like a, a, a man child trying to explain it to him. Yeah. Um, okay. Hawk reports that he has found the one armed man. We'll get back to that whole thing in a subsequent episode, but they know the hotel that he's staying at and the room looks lived in. He's still around. Uh, and they found those drugs there again, the same drugs, uh, from the, uh, you know, without chemicals, he points uh, clue that the giant had left before. Um, so whatever the little quick update from Hawk and Harry tells him Hawk will see you in the morning with like kind of a ominous sort of tone in the way that he says it. Um, because Harry and, and Cooper are planning their secret rescue mission uh, and they need to talk uh, in private about that. I like how you can tell that Hawk knows something's up. Right. Yeah, Hawk immediately He does a knows. double take on him. Yep. And, and I, don't, I wonder exactly what you're supposed to think about that. It could also be the thing where like Harry actually just told him, but he doesn't want Cooper to know that he told him. Uh, because, you know, later on when Hawk does save the day, it's like, was that a full surprise to Harry or not? I'm not totally sure. But whatever. I mean, he is a bookhouse boy. Anyway. Yeah. Well, he does say, good thing you guys can't keep a secret. Yeah, he does say that. That's true. So but. maybe that means they're just too obvious, or it could mean that Harry told him. I don't know. Right, right. Um, the other thing I thought was, like, interesting here before we get into the final, you know, conclusion of the episode is that there's this one little moment where 
Andy is serving as the receptionist with Lucy out of town. The temp didn't show up. Um, and Andy's, you know, overwhelmed with post-it notes and blah, blah, blah. And he's going through like the little desk, you know, notepad there. And he sees his post-it notes on him. Right. Of course. On on his body. Right. The the classic. Yeah. Which also happens when like they're hanging up the poster and he has the tape all over himself. Like that was a similar thing. Doesn't make sense. Nobody could be this bad. Right. But uh, he sees on the notepad that Lucy has a number written down for Gwen and Larry. uh, And that's, that's her sister that she went to go off and visit. Um, and so he wants to call and presumably tell her about, you know, the sperm test results. But when he calls the number, it's actually an abortion clinic that he gets through to. Um, so yeah, that's a little, I don't know. I don't know what little interesting, a little bit of a tidbit. Well, for now that he thinks plot. that the baby may be his, yeah. his, his, you know, his sperm work. So mm-hmm. if that's the case. He's just, I mean, he's in love with Lucy. So right. Exactly. Um, okay. Um, Maddie runs into James as she's getting her coffee and about to embark on her secret mission and basically just kind of gives him the cold shoulder, doesn't let him in on anything that's going on. Um, and so he gets frustrated and he winds up following her. Uh, there's no payoff to that just yet, but, um, you know, but it is interesting to note that whatever is going to wind up happening, James actually is like following Maddie at this point. He's the hawk of that heist. Right. Um, although, yeah, although, yeah, anyway, although that won't actually kick in in this episode, which is, it's kind of weird, the, the unevenness of the resolution of these things, but whatever, that's fine. Um, finally, we're getting into the, the heists themselves. Donna is back with Harold, she's back in her, his apartment or his house. And she, it's a beautiful scene, a great scene. I actually have never really given uh laura flynn boyle any credit before i always just thought of her as like yeah whatever she's just donna i think it's because i'm such a firewalk with me person and laura flynn boyle wasn't in firewalk with me there's a different actress plays donna um so i never really cared about laura flynn boyle that much really but man she's so good in this scene she tells this whole story about when her and laura were teenage girls and they were trying to be bad so they went to the roadhouse and like picked up some boys uh, and they wind up, wound up like going off into the woods and like skinny dipping and this guy kissed her and it was like the first time that she fell in love and it was like, it made them feel like grown ups, but you know, they were doing something bad and it was scary. And just the way she tells the story is like so good, so emotive. And actually like, I noticed this for the first time watching it this time, the way that it's filmed is like so perfectly lit that you can actually see when she's telling the story, you can see her pulse in her neck. It's like the shadow of the shot is so perfect that like when she's getting sort of emotive and like, you know, she's getting into the story and like almost aroused, you could say, like telling the story, you can actually like see her pulse pounding in her neck. It's like, I can't, I guess that's like not like, um, I guess like a lot of the credit goes to the like lighting person for that. Um, but man, it, it works really well. I thought that was a cool scene. Dude, also credit goes to Laura Flynn Boyle's uh, diet of diet Coke and cocaine. Oh yeah. Nothing but yeah. <laughs> cigarettes, uh, cocaine and yeah. And Nutrisweet. The, yeah. And camels. Yeah. <laughs> Nutrisweet. Yeah. It's very similar to the, uh, oh man, who's that golfer? Jesus. John Daly. John Daly. Yeah. Very similar to the John Daly diet. Dude, yeah. the other thing about Laura Flynn Boyle, like, yeah, I understand you're in a fire walk with me, but you also like Wayne's World, and she was Wayne's girlfriend in Wayne's World. Oh, yeah, And that's it goes right. back to, 
you the know, bitch, the, um, the psycho ex-girlfriend, yeah. Yeah, the psycho ex-girlfriend. It, psycho it hose beast. To- That's what he calls her, <laughs> psycho hose beast. <laughs> Dude, it's so funny, man. I know, and it goes back to Leland. You know, you thought maybe he even looked like Bob because he made such a creepy face. And, I mean, Laura from Boyle, I mean, she's attractive. Mm-hmm. But you would never get that from wayne's world because she just does a great job looking <laughs> right. so crazy and desperate <laughs> she can't true. look attractive even though she clearly is an attractive woman that's one of those things like when i first had wayne's world on tape that i rewound and just played over and over again to laugh at when she's waving at him like driving by and the bike <laughs> runs into the bike. car and she flips over the hood it's such a good physical comedy <laughs> Because yeah. she's going, hi, Wayne, hi. <laughs> she's, she's doing like that hi. It like just thumps right into the car. <laughs> it's like it's like what Millhouse is going to do when he's 16. <laughs> right. To Lisa. Uh, yeah, so anyway, there's, there's that scene. Uh, pr- presumably the point of that scene is that you might think like, oh, okay, well, this is where they're going to you know, uh, go off to the bedroom or something and then, and then Maddie will sneak in. But that actually doesn't happen yet. It's, it's really just a good standalone scene. There's nothing else to it. You know, Harold just says that was beautiful, Donna. And that's the end of it. Um, good stuff. Yeah. Uh, okay. Back at one eyed Jacks. Um, they're about to infiltrate uh, the one eyed Jacks, uh, Cooper and Harry. There's one guard outside. Harry says he'll go take care of it. Uh, and right before he like sneaks off to do like the metal gear solid move of like, you know, incapacitating the guard without setting off the alarm. Um, Cooper sees an owl uh, in the woods, you know, which connects back up with the judge telling him, you know, keep your eye on the woods and the owls are not what they seem and so on. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. Good catch. So yeah, they, they, uh, knock out the guard and sneak in. Now we go back to Donna and Harold again. Uh, and this time, like they're looking at the orchids, it's getting, you know, more and more, uh, uh, flirtatious to the point where like Harold excuses himself. I don't, I don't know to go like wash his junk real quick or like, I don't know exactly what he has to go off and do, but, but some Dude, sort of like the, the bellum on a, it's a part on the orchid. I mean, that sounds like labia. Yeah. Right. And then right. he says it's a landing platform for pollinating insects. Right. Yep, it's all lips. Everything in everything in nature is all lips. It's all labia. Dude, um, you know what it is? It, it's just like in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, that knight who's guarding the Holy Grail, right? He guards it at the expense of never leaving that room ever. Mm-hmm. And that's what Harold is. Mm-hmm. And he's guarding the psychic version of the Holy Grail. Right, which is... All, all those journals. Yeah, yeah, Laura's secrets, but everybody else's secrets too, yeah. But but in particular, Laura's secrets, and that's that's kind of I don't know. I I kind of feel like that's what part of the show is about. It's like this this tortured feminine, and just this like that this town that can't deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she just ends up uh, going crazy as a result. Yeah. And and at the very end of this episode, he's going to specifically talk about you know the, the the secret to end all secrets. Um, right at the end of the show. So yeah, we're, we're definitely going to return to that theme. Um, so yeah, this is when like, they're, they're kind of going to make their move. You know, Harold sneaks off. Donna takes that opportunity to give the signal to Maddie. You know, Maddie's going to sneak in, uh, and, and try to steal this diary. But then again, because of this parallel, you know, uh, conclusion that's happening, we cut back to one eyed Jacks. Um, 
and um, they 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 basically are are going through the hallways of One Eye Jacks, and they come upon um, the room where Jean Renault is hang- is sort of like uh, it's like his office or whatever, like the the office room that we've seen before, and uh, Truman is keeping an eye on that where Jean Renault and Blackie are kind of like hatching their scheme or whatever. He's watching them through the door and Coop sneaks off and winds up running into Blackie's sister, the woman who's like uh, Jean Renault's girlfriend. I can't remember her name, um, but like, yeah, Blackie's rival. And so I thought he, it was her daughter. Oh, is it? I guess I could be wrong about that. Well, he does make a point about her being younger. So I just thought, oh, it's her daughter. Oh, Really? Okay. He says something new, but I thought that means that he dumped Blackie for Blackie's sister. I don't know. Um, it's hard oh. to tell. Anyway, um, it's also confusing because Blackie's sister kind of looks like the girl who introduced um, right. Audrey to One-Eyed Jacks. They kind of have that same kind of Mediterranean look to them, in my opinion. I don't know. They look like yeah, they could, they like could a, be like Maltese or something. I have no idea. A light mocha kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. They're both really skinny too, like Blackie's skinny. Yeah. So you can confuse them from that perspective as well. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, Cooper intercepts Blackie's sister and you know grabs her by the arm and forces her to to lead him to Audrey. Audrey's you know passed out on the bed, and uh, Blackie's sister goes to make a move with a knife, like to go stab Cooper, uh, and he punches her in the gut. It's kind of weird to see like Cooper the <laughs> again the like. Beautiful Buddhist spiritual warrior soccer woman I, in the gut. I, I want that to be the new logo for the brazen heads. It's, it's just that still where he punches her in the gut. It's so <laughs> weird. Kind of, yeah, it, there's like a little, you know, literal oof on the soundtrack. Yeah, it's kind of awkward. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then, yeah, back in back in Jean Reno's office, him and Blackie uh, are, are talking, and he's kind of like messing around with her and like leading her on, blah blah blah. And he goes to like kiss her, but he actually stabs her. All right, like you, like you said before, um, he stabs Blackie, and Harry sees it happen. But then Jean sees Harry, and fires off a shot and runs away, and, he, and he's gone. Um, so now, like shit's getting serious. Um, anyway, so they, they're like fleeing, and Cooper's got Audrey, he's got her over his shoulder, like you said, the sort of like physical uh, freeing of the feminine here. Mm-hmm. Um, Coop, Coop's the hero carrying over his shoulder and they make a run for it but they get stopped by a guard uh, the guard's got a gun trained on him uh, it looks like it's the end but then Hawk uh, throws a knife at him and uh, this guy gets knifed in the back and, and Hawk saves the day um, so yeah they run off the first time somebody dies like Hawk kills a dude yeah yeah, you yeah, mean, I mean the, the first time that the good died? guys, the first time that good guys kill somebody. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like the other Renault yeah. brothers are dead. You know, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's like that Star Trek Next Generation episode where Worf kills that guy in like some honor fight. You go, whoa! This is kind of metal, sweet. <laughs> yeah, because they didn't they didn't do that in the original series. I mean, then in the next episode, he's doing Tai Chi or something. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I can get what this is about, but that was that was a really sweet part of uh, TNG for sure. You're like, oh, Worf's not gonna kill him. They're not gonna have him go back and oh, sweet, all right, <laughs> I like this. This yeah. is yeah, 
It's like, oh, sweet, Hawk kills somebody. That's cool. Yeah, so Hawk And, and he's wearing day. that sweet jacket. I want to get that jacket that he has. They, he they look great. Yeah, Harry's outfit is really cool, too. It's like his, his business casual, like, secret mission outfit instead of his usual, like, sheriff outfit. Yeah, there's, there's some good some good outfits going on. Yeah, but yeah, these guys are all like straight out of like some cool like LL Bean, but cooler. Yeah, it's like a yeah, some like a cool commercial that you would see in the '90s. I don't know what a cool brand would have been back then. I was gonna say Bugle Boy, but I think that was not cool enough. Like something cooler than that. <laughs> Bugle Boy. <laughs> um. All right. So then these guys are th- these guys are home free, right? They got Audrey. Jordash. Yeah. There you go. That's a good one. Exactly. So they save the day, they go away with Audrey, and Hank sees it all go down, right? Uh, Hank witnesses it all, he lets them go, but he kind of like phones it in and says like, okay, like, yeah, they got away, like, Hank is probably thinking like, you know, whatever, they didn't kill Cooper, but that's not my job, like, Audrey's gonna make it home, and I probably have a chance to go in and get this money back for Ben Horn. That's probably what he's thinking. But Jean Renault actually gets the drop on him. Uh, Jean Renault is like right behind Hank, and, uh, you know, whatever, captures him. And it turns out, just to complicate things by one more degree, Hank's actually carrying a fake ID, fake ID for the DA's office. Um, don't really know why that that has not been like previously like established or set up in any way, but kind of interesting. So like, no, he he stole it from his jacket when he was at the uh, double R. Oh shit! You're right. That's right. Yeah, when the guy was, that's right. Because they thought he might have been the restaurant critic. Uh, and he goes off to the bathroom, and Hank takes his ID. Damn, good one. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah very good. Very good. Okay, so yeah. yeah. H- happy to help out here. Nice. That's that's a good pull. Um, so yeah, that's where we leave things there. That's the end of the, the plot line for, that epi- for this episode when it comes to the one-eyed Jack stuff. So we'll have to see what happens from there. And then finally, the last thing that happens... We're back at Harold's. Maddie's trying to find the diary. She's bumbling. She's stumbling. She doesn't know how to, you know, operate the trap door properly. It's a comedy of errors. And uh, she makes a big clumping noise and Harold catches her. Uh, so they're busted. Um, so Harold freaks out. He grabs one of those three pronged like garden. Uh, what do you call that? Claw tool? things. Yeah, garden yeah, claw scraper, thing. Like a, yeah, like a hand version of like a tilling tool, whatever that is. Sure. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, so what is this about? Is this about like finding out secrets? You want to know the secrets? Are secret? you looking for secrets? <laughs> yeah. And he says, <laughs> he says, this, this, the, what does he say? He the, really, he really gives it. He yeah, really goes for uh, it. He, I appreciate he's that. True in the scenery. And he says something like the ultimate secret, the secret of knowing who killed you. Right. That's what he says at the very end. And he scrapes his face with the thing, which is a really bad effect. They just have like tempera paint on the garden implement it looks really and you could tell that like it accidentally brushed against his face earlier because there's already like a little red dot on his cheek before he does it it's a really bad like high school play (laughs) effect they they botched that one um but yeah he's it's supposed to be a terrifying moment where he's like scraping his own face uh and everything's like in super hd now i mean what was it when it came out you know yeah Probably couldn't tell. Yeah, I don't know. And also, not everything is supposed to be like realistic, right? In Twin Peaks, especially. Sometimes it is kind of zazzed up on purpose because it's part of the whole theme of the show. So, yeah, I don't really know. But, uh, but yeah, this thing that he says at the end of like the secret of knowing who killed you, again, like if you don't know anything, it's pretty reasonable, right? It's got to be like a top five theory that this guy could have been Laura's killer. 
you know? I mean, on the one hand, we know that he can't leave his house. We did learn that earlier in the episode. Um, but if he's not the killer, at least like he's some psycho who knows who killed her. Because uh, he's got the diary, right? And he won't let it go and he won't give it up to the police. And, and he's, you're, you're, he's creepy. You're definitely thinking we're getting closer. I can't wait till next week. That's right. what you're thinking. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. Dude, but I, I like how we analyze Twin Peaks. The good parts make it good and the bad parts make it better. <laughs> yeah. It's a tautological analysis of Twin Peaks. <laughs> Sorry. We're just going no in one wrong. direction here, guys. Yeah. If you're looking for any nuance or back and forth, nope, not not getting into here. Yeah, you start with the premise that everything that it does is right, and then you make everything fit that narrative. <laughs> it's it's pretty much it's Trumpian in that way. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, we, James hasn't run away from town yet, so once that happens, we'll see if everything is still awesome. But uh, we'll get there. Well, like you were saying a couple of minutes ago, it's like if you look at this episode as though it's this sort of thing of like, you know, the spiritual and the physical. Uh, like feminine sort of like secret rescuing or, or secret uh, liberating or whatever. Um, you know, Harold is directly uh, here explicitly talking about, you know, secrets and that he's sort of the keeper uh, of this, of this knowledge that, that, that Maddie and, and, and Donna are after. So yeah, I think it's nice. It's a good analysis. I mean, what else does Harold have? Yeah. Right. His flowers, I guess. Dude, when's the next, the next, the next time an attractive woman's just going to come knock on his door asking around? Right. Because I mean, that's the next time he's going to have a date. I mean. Yeah. I know. You think about it, like in the lore of Twin Peaks, you know, the previous person who was doing Meals on Wheels uh, with Laura was Shelly. It's like, man, this dude, he's got, he's got a good run of uh, people delivering him food at his house, you know? So yeah. Yeah. He'd bring on the next one. Shelly's not too bad. I mean, every Twin Peaks babe is a babe. Mm-hmm. There's not one Twin Peaks babe. Yeah, they're all babes. And that was a big part of the show so good at casting. the time. Was you know that that's like that's why they were on the cover of Rolling Stone and stuff is because they were all such babes, each in their own way. Yeah. Speaking of which, no sighting of Josie in this episode at all. We just completely left that entire plot line. Like, what about the fact that at the end of the last episode, Hank got the shit beaten out of him by that Asian dude? Like, that never comes up in this episode. Whatever, we'll get yeah, back to that. Never comes up. <laughs> we didn't see Josie. We didn't, you know, Truman didn't even think about Josie this whole episode. We didn't see Pete. Um, yeah, there's a lot of different plate spinning. We never saw Norma in this episode. We never returned to the food critic uh, subplot, although that will come back again later still. Um yeah, it's just there's just a lot of different threads going. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's uh, I was thinking I had another thought, but I guess I don't. The Brazenhead Podcast at Gmail dot com. Yeah, I think we got two more really good episodes. If I if I was looking ahead properly, I think it's two or three more really good ones. I think two. Well. I mean, at least two, yeah. Yeah, at least two. Yeah, there's good ones after that as well, but I'm excited about the next two specifically because it's like, if you think about it being like an arc within the season, it's like this arc within season two is coming to an end in about two episodes here, and it's all really good stuff. So yeah, stick with us, the Brazenheads Podcast at gmail.com. A friend of mine said that he doesn't even bother watching Twin Peaks. He just listens to us talk about it. Um, so th- that's what we're here for. Yeah. Dude, we're like the riff tracks who like surpass the art. 
Right. We don't even need to do it. Yeah. We don't even need to do it in real time with the show anymore. Although we have done that. We did that for Pumping Iron for our episode 100. Old heads will know. Oh, yeah. All right, man. All right. Take care. Good talking to you. Yep. All right. We'll talk to everybody soon. Late. <laughs>